90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm just eagerly waiting for it to rain. How are you? <laughs> uh, the same. Man. I'm waiting for the temperatures to drop because it has been oh, just brutal, miserable. Um, so our good friend, Gary, over at the OCS Meds Net Ticker, <laughs> the seven-day rain forecast for the country, and this was a week ago, it was all shades. They start out in shades of blue and purple, and then they go green, and, you know, this is really pretty map. Literally, Oklahoma is a, it's a donut around Oklahoma, and we're the donut hole of no rain. It was the craziest map I've ever seen. <laughs> Every person I showed it to said, I'm moving away from the state. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it was awful. So there are, of course, storms just to our north, and I'm sure the Norman Storm Suppression Zone will be in full force. And uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm I'm watching on radar right now some things that are looks like going to get to us in. Oh, uh, given the storm track, I'm going to say 60 minutes. Mm, okay, so we got to get this done so there's no big boomies in the background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's the week before school, so you know we'll start ramping up while you start slowing down <laughs> yep exactly um though we've been so busy we've had all of our equipment running in the shop um that's part of why i'm ready for it to cool down because when we have all of the equipment running the oh. hvac can't keep up <laughs> oh man and we get into the 80s pretty easily by lunch in the building that's not fun it's not fun uh you would think that it could recover some while we're at lunch, but that was not the case today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's get this cold front through here, and everyone will be much happier tomorrow, I think. Oh, yes. Yeah, including my dog who, yeah, he makes it 10 feet out the door, and then he just melts into the ground, and it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And he just lays there. <laughs> Won't move. He literally looks like he was poured out of an ice cream cone. So, <laughs> Yep. Yeah, he's not even going to know what to do with himself. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. so we're pretty much done with summer shorts, I think. <sighs> Just because there's a cold front tonight. <laughs> Though, <laughs> right. <laughs> Though I don't know that this is going to be a you know, marathon episode. I know it's one that you're excited about because we get to talk about one of your favorite things. Ah, ah, that's right. Um, you know, sometimes it gets hot, it cools down, gets hot again, got to get the shorts back out. So yeah. But <laughs> as we were discussing, you know, what we're going to do this week, I <laughs> went back to my favorite academic paper ever written by Dr. David Kring, from 1997, and it's about what the air blast produced by the meteor crater impact event did to the animals living there, <laughs> which we used as a fun paper, man, way back. I think it was like episode 80-something. And so we've used this as a fun paper before, but it got me thinking about 
different places. I've been putting together budgets for field trips and such too. And then I thought, okay, what are we going to do today? And I did a couple of Google searches and came up with some listicles of cool geology places to go. And this kept coming up on them. So Meteor Crater was like number two on one of them, like in North America, coolest geology place to visit. And, uh, well, my, I'm not incredulous about that. It's a very cool site. Um, but it was consistently in like the top five on all these listicles that came up. And I thought, that's interesting. Why don't we talk, let's revisit Meteor Crater because we haven't talked about it in a long time. But then also just to talk about how how we feel about these, you know, cool geologic things that are used as, you know, for-profit tourist attractions, essentially, because that's what this is. And this is, and it's very well done, but it's weird to me to think about sometimes and just interesting to talk about, like, should these places be used like this? Right. Yeah. So when's the last time you were at Meteor Crater? So I haven't been there in quite a while. Um, I was hoping that my class was going to, my grad class was going to get enough people for the fall, but it turns out we have a ton of classes in the fall and not a ton of students. So I won't be going out there now. I must have gone out there 2016 or 17 was the last time I've been. So, ah, so you've got maybe 12 the last time I oh was man, there. Oh, man. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was probably 16 because um, it was one of my first years teaching. Gosh, it might have even been 15, but yeah, definitely since 2012. So a lot has changed since then, which you probably saw when you went on the website. Yes. Yeah, and so we went. we were there like in between what it looked like in 2012 and what it appears that it, the behemoth that it is now. So, but before, we should tell people where it is. Or you can just look on cool geology places to go, and it's always in the top five. Because it is really cool. Um, and it's this meteorite impact, the Canyon Diablo meteorite, um, was what caused it in Arizona. Yeah. So it's outside of Winslow. You're standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. Mm. And Meteor Crater is such a fine sight to see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, and uh, it's, it's not it's very pretty, big. <laughs> yeah, I say it's pretty easy to get to, but when you pull up, you're like, this is what I came to? <laughs> I'm glad we were both like, I'm sorry, you're tiny. <laughs> it's so cool as you're coming up to it, though, because you can sort of see, like, the. it looks like a zit, <laughs> like, geomorphologically speaking, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Because you can see, like, the raised-up rim of this. And when we say not very big, now we've done a ton of shows about meteorite impacts. So you can go back and and read, you know, the differences between simple craters and complex craters and all that. But this one isn't very big. It's uh, 1.2 kilometers in diameter. And I say diameter like there are air quotes around it because it's kind of square, actually, because it's got some really weird faults associated with it. Yeah, and actually, my first thought when I saw it was, wow, the thing that made this must have been tiny. <laughs> oh, it was. <laughs> I mean, it is, you know, it, it's still a giant hole in the ground that would take incredible amounts of effort for us to make. Yes. 
But in terms of things flying at high speeds from space, it's it's a pimple. And so they have a piece of the Canyon Diablo meteorite. I just like to say that. Um, that's an excellent name for a rock. <laughs> and they say that the original one was maybe up to 30 meters in diameter, but there's no way that thing was that big. No, the things I've heard were more like the size of a washing machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they got a, like a half the size of a washing machine chunk of it on display in Meteor Crater itself um, in their little building there, which is not little anymore. But it's still... Yeah. It's still... That would fairly efficiently, as this paper by David Kring, which we've talked about many times, <laughs> points out that fairly efficiently will turn anything within a couple of miles inside out. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's big. <laughs> and more interestingly, I've been really obsessed with reading papers on the frequency of meteorite um, impacts on continental crust or the ocean. So about every 6,000 years on continental crust, the likelihood of an event like this, or 1,600 years anywhere on the earth. So these are not infrequent. Like this is a pretty small thing, not infrequent to in terms of statistically getting hit by something like this. Right. Yeah. I imagine like the Chablensk and other ones, if they hadn't have exploded, might've done this sort of exact same damage. Yeah. I would imagine so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what it is. It's really cool because there is not a lot of vegetation out here, which is why I always talk about how cool the Southwest is for doing <laughs> geology because nothing's there to cover it up. And so you can very clearly see the stratigraphy. And like I said, if you look at this thing from above, it almost looks rectangular to me, it's like a squished circle. And that's because it's got these really strange, it's got both radial faults and these other faults that cut it that happened, um, when everything was like settling back down after it got, um, after it got annihilated by that Canyon Diablo meteorite. And that was also not very long ago. Uh, meteor craters only about 50,000 years old. Right. So yeah, but it's just, it's very classic. It was very classically preserved out there because there is no vegetation to get in the way you can see, like, the little overturned stratigraphy that just kind of flapped out of the crater. You can see the breccia at the bottom. And they use this place most famously, you know, to train astronauts because it's very much like you would find a little crater on the moon. So, yeah. Right. So, when you went, what did you do and what was your experience like other than getting out and going, really? <laughs> So the first time, um, I guess I, I've been twice on field trips and then I've led a field trip out there once before. So I've been there three times and that's, you know, quite a bit. So I went the first time, probably in 2005, maybe even 2004, somewhere around in there. And it was, it, so this is also called Behringer Crater. Um, as well as Meteor Crater. And so back then, it was still, like, really being heavily studied. They weren't... They sort of knew how old everything was, but a lot of the science was still going on. 
And so it was one of those things, if you're familiar with road tripping in the desert, there'll be signs for it for a long time. There's a sign and there was like a little, little building, not very big. You could go through that had, you know, a piece of the meteorite. You know, these are the things that Behringer did when he discovered this and talks about the geology. There's some really cool geology exhibits. And then you could go outside and you could take a little walk along the rim of it by yourself. And you could look down in the bottom of it. They, had a, they have a plane that's been crashed down there. And so, you know, they're like, look for scale. Look at this tiny plane and all this. And they have like a little cutout of an astronaut in the bottom of it. And so it was very self-guided. There wasn't a lot to do besides read the exhibits and then go outside. And so the first time, that's what we did. It was really cool. I was very excited. I was working on my master's, which was, of course, about impact craters. Um, I was there on a class fix field trip. So it was really fun. That was my first time. And it was really small. And so by the second time I got there, it was much bigger. <laughs> there was a lot more sort of like touristy things inside, which is probably around the time that you had been to. Because I think I went back in 2010, 2011 was my next time. And so I'll let you talk about what you thought of it then. I don't know if you had been before you went in 2012. No, I hadn't. And I will say, I, we don't say that it's small to discourage you from going. Uh, as geologists who had thought about craters, you much more so than I. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we were used to thinking at a different scale. Yes. And you say small because it's actually, it's fairly simple. I mean, they're called right. simple craters. They're not called complex craters. So, yes, so, you should absolutely see it. You're yeah, say that not to diminish how cool it is to go yes. see. <laughs> yes, All right. absolutely. So, yeah, when I went, there was the building. Uh, I want to say I had to pay like 17 bucks. Yeah. To okay. walk through the door, which yep. I thought was a little crazy. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think um, it was more on the order of like eight or nine bucks the first time around. <laughs> which so. I would be okay with. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I thought, well, that's a little steep. And then there were some exhibits, like they had just made a kind of a kid themed video for kids to understand what happened. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, I can't remember what all there was in the little science center building, but they had just added on a small part that was maybe 30 by 30 that had some more general science exhibits about space. Mm-hmm. And you could walk out onto the rim yourself, but you could only go maybe 100 yards from the building on your own. If you wanted to go beyond that, you had to pay like $30 for a guided tour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I found annoying. <laughs> uh, I mean, I understand them not wanting people to just hike anywhere, especially not down into the crater. Right. That's lawsuit central i'm sure yes i was a little annoyed that i'd paid and couldn't go very far at the time mm-hmm. uh, but you know i still i spent a decent amount of time out there they had some little things that you could look at that were like oh look at this feature and you look through this little telescope and you could see it uh, i of course had binoculars with me of course <laughs> so i could look around with those um uh, I don't know, I probably spent, I'm going to say I spent about two or three hours there. 
total, like going through the building and going out on the little trail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was impressed. So, you know, if you go to, let's say you go to a national park. Anyone know about the geology there? Uh, you might find a park ranger that's really into the geology there. You might find a park ranger that's not so much. They're into the birds or something else there. Uh, that's all great. This was very focused on the geology, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think that l- that made it a richer experience for the people that came there because they came there for geology, and that's what they got was geology. Right. Yes. Exactly. That was one of my big takeaways from it both times. Um, and so Gene Shoemaker was a geologist who worked on Behringer Crater um, for his PhD. So it's called Behringer Crater because he was this engineer that had said, hey, this crater was probably, <clears throat> excuse me, I was probably formed by an impact, which was a big deal because impact geology wasn't really a thing until like, you know, around this time, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and so there's a big fight about that. We've talked about the so-called crypto volcanic structures, which is what a lot of people, including G.K. Gilbert, the head of the USGS, super famous geologist, thought that this was. And so Shoemaker proved that it wasn't. He found um, coazite, which is a mineral that you only find formed from the high pressures caused during an impact. So it's, there's a lot of science that went on. I'm, I'm giving this background to say that there's a lot of science that went on at this specific crater. And that's what struck me too, especially with that little bitty building that they had the very first time I went, is that it was very science specific. So one of the things that I did for my master's um, was I went to like the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference and got really involved in the planetary geology community, which Gene Schumacher is kind of the daddy of. Um, and a big deal during that time was figuring out the size of these impactors when you don't have them. So how big was your bolide? And doing computer simu- simulations on like how messed up are your rocks, therefore how much pressure had to go into hitting them, how big had the, did the bolide have to be, and the angle of trajectory. And they had this ridiculous, like, DOS-looking thing where you could put in those numbers, and it would run the simulation for you. And it would be like, you know, try to guess. And it was one of the first things you saw was this little screen. And it was like, try to guess, you know, how big the thing was that made Meteor Crater, you know, what angle was it at, and all this stuff. And I thought that was really cool because that was some of the stuff I was researching for my master's. And then we were seeing it right there. And it was just so, like, up-to-date scientific that was presented, which is not always what you expect, especially in something that looks like a tourist trap in the middle of the desert, you know. And so that was, like, really impressive to me, even from just their small exhibits. Yes. And that was one thing that I was like, okay, like... Yes, it's expensive, but there's a reason that a lot of displays, a lot of places are outdated. It's because they don't have the money to update them. Mm -hmm. These people had the money to update. Right. Right. 
And it sounds like from their website, they've continued to expand (laughs) and add on. So fast forward, I'm leading my own field trip there in whatever indeterminate year, 2015, 2016. So like you had said, John, they had added a little area. And then when we were there, they were in the midst of adding like three times as much space. Uh-huh, space. Uh, <laughs> and, like, they had totally, like, the entrance before was just, like, you just walked up, you just paid at this little window. Now the entrance, like, the thing that I think of is I liken it to you go to, like, a super big aquarium in, like, like a really big city, like the aquarium You're in right. Chicago or something, right? And it's, like, that's what it was like when you walked in. Like, it's this huge wall where you can't see anything inside the building, it's got, like, the prices and all the stuff you can do. Um, and just like you said, that second time, you had to pay a, a lot extra to get a tour of the actual outside near the rocks. And so this time, they were still in the process of adding all this stuff, but their prices had gone way up. And it was, like, 20 bucks, 22 bucks to get in. And, you know, I had my class of students, and luckily I had budgeted for it, but was kind of shocked because I I saved money on my food, thank God, so we could get in <laughs> in there because right. the, like admission was like twice as much as I thought it would be. Um so I did come away from that a little bit angry because they hadn't actually added a whole bunch of stuff yet that was accessible, but yet we were paying more. And so I was kinda I was kinda cranky about that. Um but we did take the tour on the outside, like around the rim a little bit more. And it was a little bit farther than the last time, but still not much. So that was kind of like, oh, that's a bummer. Um, so the last time I was actually a little bit bummed out about it. But man, getting on the website now, which it's much more expensive, but it looks like there is an incredible amount of things there to do. And yeah. Yeah, I think now it's a science museum with a crater out back. Yeah. <laughs> instead of a building on the side of a crater that you could go see. Exactly. And so my whole thought about these things is I say this in native science all the time, like geologically interesting places or meteorologically interesting places are always like sacred places to the people that have lived there in the past. And this is sort of the exact same thing, really, because you know, we've made this museum to this structure right, right there. And I say tourist trap, but it's like, it's so, this one is very scientific. It's had a lot of very (laughs) prominent scientists that have actually studied there, but the info is so up to date there because a lot of crater science, and we've talked about this on the, with as long as we've been doing the show has even changed. And so the way we understand the dynamics of impact craters and it appears from their online part, like they've really kept up to date with that. And as much as I wouldn't want to pay $25 a person to go, (laughs) I probably would because it looks like a really great experience. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was always really curious. Uh, we talked about during our fun paper read of this, I think, uh, about the little well that's at the bottom mm-hmm. where they drilled and cored. I was like, oh, that'd be really cool to go down there. I still think it'd be really cool to go down into the bottom, but I know that's very hard to get to. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
I do sort of regret not doing the guided tour, even though it was a little extra money, mm-hmm. just because I wanted to go further out on the rim. If I go back, I probably will. I I don't know if you made it all the way through this website, but it's included with admission now. Oh, yeah. Okay. So like, cost is a little bit more, but you get the guided tour is still inc- or is included now. So that's pretty cool. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But they have a 4D theater now, which is new. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is much nicer than the tiny room <laughs> where they showed that. <laughs> yeah, and like the old TV. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, with the folding chairs. And, <laughs> and it looks like now they've got like every good tourist place, a giant gift shop with all the same stuff that you see in the other gift shops. Mm-hmm. Yep, they sure do, which was... Also not always the case, which didn't mean I didn't buy everything there because I did. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you've got to have whatever mug from wherever you went. That's why I have a thousand mugs mm-hmm. and pint glasses. Yep, exactly. Exactly. They, they, <laughs> I very specifically remember this. Cause, you know, the, the worm logo, as they call it, the NASA worm logo, um, it had gone away. You know, that wasn't the cool thing anymore. But when right. I was there in, like, the early 2000s, they had a whole bunch of stuff with the worm logo on it, and I definitely bought all of that. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I, I don't think I have anything with the the yeah. worm logo left. I think all mine are the meatball. Yeah. Yeah, that was my childhood NASA obsession. So that made me very excited. But, um it's like, there's a, you can obviously get all of this stuff online now, which is also impressive. Right. <laughs> Very impressive. And they have gone to the laser printing on rocks, which we do a lot of here. And so you can get your little fake colored agate that says meteor crater on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if it's like, I mean, I love tourist attractions and all that jazz. I'm not snotty about that at all but this one is such a mix of just being a tourist attraction because it's you know out in the middle of the desert but also there's a lot of people going you know to hoover dam and all that jazz it's not too far away from there so a lot of people could potentially stop there but it is like a world-class scientific research site too it's not just like oh you know here's the national parks you might not just like you said you might not hear hardly anything about the geology if you go like this is essentially a geology museum associated with this and i bet they have a thousands and thousands of people go through here every year yeah and i mean getting getting people to go to a geology museum if you say geology museum it's not going to happen (laughs) that's right (laughs) just because geology has this connotation of being a boring thing which we know it's not Mm mm-hmm Exactly. But I think this is actually great yes. marketing, if you will, for <laughs> yeah. the geosciences. Exactly. Exactly. That's kind of that's kind of what I thought. I was like, oh hey, we'll just revisit this because I love this. I love this paper. <laughs> this is a really cool place. And then when I started to look at this, I was like, my goodness, this has totally changed and is very slick. Like super slick. They have a little there's a little um 
button on the front page if you go to just meteorcrater.com and it says they were awarded like Condé Nast Traveler Seven Wonders of the World a couple of years ago. So wow. Like, yeah, that's why they're on all these listicles <laughs> now. And this is just a hole in the desert that some some really, really nerdy planetary geologist used to go to. And now it's this huge, huge thing that is a very interesting evolution of it. But also, I think, what a lot of science museums should sort of strive to strive to be, you know? Yep. Yeah. So I thought it was really cool. They've done some stuff like now it looks like they've partnered and done some stuff with Lowell Observatory, which we've talked about before on here as well. So there's still a lot of science that's going on there. It was kind of a a really cool place. So if you have a little bit of summertime left and you want to go do something, highly suggest this trip. Or, I mean, fall is the appropriate time to go here. Okay, yeah, that's absolutely right. (laughs) You should not go there now. (laughs) I went there in July. That was rough. (laughs) No, I think think I've always been there in the fall. So that is, you are absolutely correct. That is the time to go. And you probably don't want to be out there with the monsoon season, such as it is this year either, so. And... Have you seen the photos when the crater fills with radiation fog overnight? Oh, so cool. I had not until I just got on here today looking at it. That is the scariest thing I've ever seen. Right. <laughs> like, it looks like a huge cauldron. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, you expect this 500-foot witch to come up and start stirring it because it's just stuck down in the bowl, and that is crazy. <laughs> well, like... There's got to be some interesting, like, planetary boundary layer drops on data you could collect. (laughs) Man, I would think so, too. You could just check it right over the edge. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So, see? Geology and meteorology. All in one spot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd like to go back. I'd like to see it again. Uh, I'd like to see the new science center. I mean, that building is 800 times, okay, okay, that's maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but saying it is 20 times bigger than the tiny building is not hyperbole. It's huge now. We we need to do a podcast live from (gasps) Meteor Crater. Oh my gosh. Excellent. We're going. We need some more Patreon supporters for that, so. (laughs) Got got to put gas in the plane. That's right. (laughs) But let's not crash it like that plane that's in the middle of it right now. Right. Uh, but, you know, I did it on part of my summer tour between undergrad and grad school. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I hit a bunch of national parks, hit Lowell Observatory, hit the crater. Uh, so much to do right there. Like, if you want an oh, awesome yeah. summer vacation with your family, oh. uh, go to Arizona and New Mexico. Yeah. State boards of tourism don't sponsor us, but uh, we're interested. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, you can go to um, the Hoover Dam is super close, and then you can spend another hour and a half, and you can make it over to Death Valley. It is an amazing area to loop the geology right there. And on your way back, if you live east of there, hit the Grand Canyon. It's perfect. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. So that's your your uh, <laughs> late summer travel plans. <laughs> I am I am looking up right now how long it would take to get there. 
excellent. I can tell we'll we'll stay on and figure that out on the <laughs> on the way out. But you know, John, I am a little bit of a nervous flyer, so I may have to take something to calm myself down before we before we get in the plane. Do you take the red pill or do you take the blue pill? <laughs> the blue. We'll find out on this week's Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Again, I did not go looking for this one. This one fell in my lap, and I thought, this is really weird. (laughs) So it's the effect of color of drugs, systematic review of perceived effect of drugs and their effectiveness by, let's see, (laughs) Decrayon? That's what I would have said. At all? Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is in the December issue of the BMJ. Of course it is, because you found it. <laughs> I saw it, and I read the abstract on a different like website, and then clicked on it, and I was like, oh, man, he's not even going to let me have this on here. But it's from 96. Yes. So and the I format th- is significantly different in like, yeah. the journals that we fondly remember when they were on paper. Yes, exactly. But it's exactly what it sounds like. So if a pill is a certain color... What does that mean for its perceived or real effectiveness? And can you correlate that to what the pill does, right? So do you want a stimulant or a downer? The colors that go with that. If you have an antidepressant and it's yellow versus if it's red, does that mean anything? And it turns out, even though this is just a little review paper, it turns out it probably does. Yeah, which means the people that came up with the marketing for the little blue pill should have read this first. Yes, exactly. Because if it was an aggressive orange or red, they'd sell even more. Right. (laughs) Because that's exactly it, just like you said. So orange and red pills had more effect, whether it was a placebo or not, um, because they did have some trials in here where they changed the colors of already like already in manufactured drugs and gave them to people. And so if the point was it was a stimulant, if it was an orange or red, people reported that it worked better. And if it was a hypnotic or a sedative and it was blue or purple, it was reported to work better. Yeah, and they did one study where they gave placebos of different colors to med school students (laughs) and said, this is a sleep aid. Tell us how it works. This was unbelievable. And very significantly, the cooler colored pills, people reported they fell asleep faster. 32 minutes faster. Yeah. And slept longer. 30 30 something minutes longer. I mean, I might try this with Skittles. (laughs) No, I can't. Swallow, don't you? M&M's. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just have Lindy gather all the blue candy she can. <laughs> Is this a Pez? No, just swallow it. <laughs> it's it's like a very weird version of who's the rock star that had to have no brown M&M's. Or... Oh, that's right. Uh, it was the Black Keys dude, right? Um. <laughs> so, yeah, some, some version of that. Like, I, I before I perform my... <laughs> 
my science. <laughs> I can only have yellow M&Ms. <laughs> that is an hour and seven minutes more sleep. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, and the, the yellow for the antidepressants, I thought was very interesting, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they tried that experiment. They also tried one. I was like, this seems questionable. Of people before they had minor surgery, which I <laughs> yeah. took to mean like, we're going to, you know, put a couple stitches in your finger or something. I hope they that's gave what them it these <laughs> different colors and said, this is a tranquilizer to help you relax before we do your procedure. And they were placebos. Yeah. I thought, did they give them something for real? Okay. If I thought of it as stitches, that makes it a little bit better. I was like, I mean, that's what I interpreted weird. as minor procedure, but either way. Yeah, that was a little rude. Rude. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I wonder if this would pass a review board now. No kidding. Way to go, 90s. <laughs> and so, in BMJ style, in my opinion, at the end, they're like, okay, this is weird. You know, none of these were their trials, but they're like, you know, this is weird. Um, But the number one thing you can take out of here is like, market drugs with these colors because people will think they're more effective than they are simply by the color. And they talked to several drug companies and one said, yes, we have done research on this. Mm-hmm. It's not public, but we have done research on this. Yep. And I thought it was very interesting. They also said initially they wanted to find out like, what are the common antidepressants that are being prescribed? And they wrote to the drug companies that, hey, we're doctors doing a study. Please send us one of each of these so we can evaluate its color against a color atlas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And if the drug company did not, they went to a hospital pharmacy and said, we need to see one of these. Yeah. And so, like, this is that whole, you know, Pantone. They made sure they <laughs> did this correctly. I don't know if you've ever seen the soil or, like, the shale or soil color chart. I have. Yeah, that's what I imagine them doing, is having these little pills and their little atlas of, German atlas of colors. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And holding them up. (laughs) Well, and I do find it interesting, like, when I get a prescription at the pharmacy, for example, last time I picked up, it had a description on the package Mm -hmm. that said, these pills should be this shape and this color and have this text printed on the outside. If they're not, do not take them. Yeah. That scared me. I checked every one of my pills when that happened to me. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Like, I wonder how much they use color to differentiate. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know, but maybe if the drug companies are, you know, heating this information more than we think. Yeah. They should certainly use it to market. I thought this one was extraordinarily interesting because, I mean, it's not, it's not something I would have thought about, but it makes complete sense. Well, and they'd said that white pills are seen as ineffectual. Yes, and I could totally see that as well. Mm-hmm. Number one, they're boring. <laughs> well, what are we all used to taking that was a little white pill forever? Aspirin? An aspirin, and it never helped your headache. I always think that, too. I don't get people that are all into aspirin. I'm like, no, no. Mm-hmm. Never done a thing for me. Nope. Me? Neither. Like, give me some Tylenol, but those used to be white, too. Yep. Before the gel caps. But they're red now. They're red and blue. Red the ones placebo. I have. Yep. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's interesting. They I wonder what about... the effect of a red and blue half and half pill is. Ooh. No kidding. <laughs> no effect. They cancel each other out. 
Uh, maybe. <laughs> weakness to water well, and or fire. Maybe it's, are you trying to stay awake and do your job, but this <laughs> headache's killing you? Then look at the red part when you take exactly. it. Are you trying to go to sleep, but your leg cramps won't let you? Like, look at the blue part. <laughs> you just cover it up. Oh, that's a good call. They talked about one being orange and black in here, like when they were like, it's like, I don't know if I've ever taken a black pill. That's exciting. <laughs> I don't think I have. Yeah. I think everything's been yellow, white, blue, I can red, see it being pink. like the ha- the capsules where it's like half black and half clear. I wonder if that's what the case was, but still. The clear ones are interesting because mm-hmm. then you see all the little like rabbit pellets in there. Yeah. And sometimes they like Nexium. All my pill relations are due to... <laughs> Acid reflux. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I've taken every pill you could take for that. That is how my stress manifests. Um, Like the little Nexium ones are like dark, dark purple and clear. And then all those little balls, rabbit balls in there were different colors too. That was an exciting pill. (laughs) I love taking those. (laughs) Yeah, so see the marketing worked, right? I know. Exactly. Because like I don't need the Nexium. I know that the store brand does the exact same thing for me but sometimes i'm like these also make me happy <laughs> super there you go. weird yeah brilliant this is brilliant i totally am going to see if there are new there's got to be new studies about this out there somewhere so and interestingly enough uh, i ran onto a very cool vein of literature during my PhD because I was dealing with granular physics a lot mm-hmm. on the physics of how you pack, pack one. <gasps> powder into pills. That is very interesting. And one of the big issues they had was the equipment could become electrostatically charged <gasps> oh. from the powder moving over it and you might get electrostatic repulsion of the powder from a mold dye, which could be a problem because then you would underdose the patient. Mm. Or you could get electrostatic clumping of an active ingredient and it didn't mix with the filler and binder like it should, and you could have a poorly formed bound pill that was an overdose Overdose. of the medication. Oh, man. So there's all of this interesting literature about how you effectively handle, process, mix, and package powders into pellets. And then you were like, I'm going to stick these things in the biax. <laughs> use some of the same equipment they use to diagnose problems in a medical packing scenario. Oh, see. And, uh, yep, we used it on rocks. Amazing. Ah, I love it. Yeah. BMJ didn't let me down is all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, and nothing more shows that... One, the mind's a powerful thing, and two, everything is more complicated than you think it is. <laughs> yep. Yep. But if you make all your little rabbit balls party colored, I'm going to buy them no matter what pills they are. <laughs> oh, there you go. It'd be interesting to see the color history of illegal drugs. Hmm. Like, do they choose fun colors? <laughs> that is super interesting and nothing I have any experience in. Um, but I do know some people I could probably ask Right. Uh, uh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's somebody's dissertation right there. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. You're welcome, all the med school students that listen to us. <laughs> well, once you uh, write that up, 
We would absolutely love to read it. Please send us that. So, Shannon, how can they do that? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. If you want to help fund this poor grad student's dissertation, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And we are on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of 